I went down for crew practice and introduced myself to the freshman coach, Peter Gardner. He said, well, gee, I have never had a blind uh, oarsman before, but what the heck? He said, I do have to introduce you to the varsity coach, however. So he went, introduced me to the varsity coach, and I explained that I could not see, so uh, learning to row would be a little bit different process for me. And at this point, this coach, his name was Delos Dutch Shock, said, what the hell difference does that make? A lot of fellas I've coached row like they can't see what the hell they're doing anyway. That was 84-year-old Oral Miller, a founding member of the Out of Sight Dragons, describing his experience joining the crew team at Princeton University in the 1950s. Hear more about Oral's sporting life and his long career as a lawyer in Episode 2 of the Out of Sight Dragons podcast. Here we are with Oral Miller, a founding member of the Out of Sight Dragons. How are you doing, Oral? Just fine, thank you. Great. Thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. How did you become involved with the Out of Sight Dragons? Going back seven or eight years ago, I was contacted by uh, Mabel Kagi, who wanted me to get a group of adults together to take part in sport. I had participated in sports over the years. I had been a bowler in 10-pin bowling for many years. I had been uh, an active participant in the program called Ski for Light for uh, many years, and I've been active in the uh, U.S. Association for Blind Athletes for many years. At that point, when I was contacted uh, about getting people involved, I said, well, what about reaching out to adults who are blind and who may have had some sports background in the past? And that's how I happened to be contacted by or get in touch with Mabel Kagi because she was working with a group at the Center for uh, Older Blind People. I don't remember the name of the organization now. And once we made contact, then we decided, well, this is a wonderful activity for blind people. I found out that there was a team in Oregon. There was a team that had been together for a number of years made up of uh, blind people that had been sponsored by a charitable organization out there. But there was no other blind uh, group together. So Maybell and I then decided we needed to get together and we needed to have an organization formed to attract these people. And because of my legal background, I said, well, let's form a nonprofit organization. So we decided on this crazy name, the Out of Sight Dragons. So are the Out of Sight Dragons, is that a 501c3 organization? That is a 501c3 organization which we incorporated at that time. And uh, I went through the process of qualifying it for uh, tax-exempt status, etc. And we then started contacting people in organizations or clubs or associations around the Washington metropolitan area who might be interested. And that's how we ended up with uh, many of the people who come from a variety of backgrounds. Was it difficult to get 20 paddlers for the team? We had to build up to it, yes. But we started working on it and uh, gradually increasing the number. So had you ever participated in an activity on the water? Yes, I had. When I was in college as a freshman, although I had never grown up 
in an area where uh, boating was a super uh, active sport. I was contacted by one of the uh, alumni who uh, had spoken to me originally about applying for admission to Princeton University. And when I went to Princeton, I was told that if I wanted to hear more about crew rowing, I should uh, go down to the uh, first day of uh, freshman crew practice in the fall of my freshman year. That was after I'd been on the campus for maybe three or four weeks. Were you blind at that time? Yes. I have been blind since I was eight years old. Just to wander off the subject a little bit, I was blinded when I was eight years old when an angry uncle smashed a light bulb in my face. He refused to accept the word of the medical doctor who at that time said, one eye is totally destroyed, so remove it so it will not take the sight in the other eye. He did not want to hear that. Instead, he insisted on attempting to restore the sight in the injured eye. And in the process, the uninjured eye sympathized with the injured one and uh, the vision started going downhill. And went downhill considerably. I was in the third grade at that time. I uh, was also involved in a move across town to another part of the city. I grew up in the city of, at least at that point, in the city of Ashland. That's Ashland, Kentucky. Because I was moving to another part of the city and going to another grade school uh, and getting a lot of medical treatment at that time, I did not attend any more of the third grade that year. By the next year, we had moved to another part of the city, so I went to the grade school in that part of the city where I went through the entire year by sitting in the class and listening to the other students, not being able to see the blackboard or be able to see to read. The school system then contacted my family and told them about the state school for the blind in faraway Louisville. So when the next year came, I went off to the uh, state school for the blind in Louisville. And what year was this? The early 1940s? That was the 1940s, yes. Yes. It was early in World War II when I went away to the school for the blind. Was that a boarding school for you? Yes. So you're nine years old and going off to boarding school. That's correct. Uh, Louisville was about 200 miles away from uh, Ashland, so uh, yes, I went away and uh, was gone during the school year and then would come back at the beginning of the summer. Now, eventually, the School for the Blind did change superintendents. It got a much more liberal and more understanding superintendent on board, and he established a program by which juniors and seniors at the School for the Blind, and it was an, an accredited high school, but according to this program, uh, Juniors and seniors, if they wanted to, would go to school each day at one of the big public high schools in that city. So it was that program which I attended by the time I did reach uh, my junior year. As a junior and a senior, I lived at the Kentucky School for the Blind and participated in extracurricular activities there, but did all my academic work at Louisville Male that's M-A-L-E, high school. And it was from Male High that I graduated and from which uh, I entered Princeton. And when I did go to Princeton then, as I said, I heard about crew practice from one of the alumni who had been uh, one of the local Louisville alumni to uh, interest me in Princeton in the first place. Now, I'll point out at this time that uh, I went off to Princeton as a penniless lad from the uh, Appalachian Highlands. I had no money. My family had no money. I had no idea what 
uh, costs, etc., were like at Princeton. So Princeton was extremely helpful and very generous. And uh, I'll say also that I helped by doing uh, pretty well on tests and examinations and things like that. So I did receive uh, very generous scholarship assistance from Princeton. But while there, I did hear about crew practice. So I went down for crew practice and introduced myself to the freshman coach, Peter Gardner. He said, well, gee, I... I've never had a blind uh, oarsman before, but what the heck? He said, I do have to introduce you to the varsity coach, however. So he went introduced me to the varsity coach, and I explained that I could not see, so uh, learning to row would be a little bit different process for me. And at this point, this coach, his name was Delos Dutch shock said what the hell difference does that make a lot of fellas i've coached row like they can't see what the hell they're doing anyway so uh, it was based on that that i did uh, go out for freshman crew practice the rigger that is the man at the boathouse who was in charge of the maintenance and uh, the, the boats figured that i needed some assistance so he put a he tacked a little tag on the round handle of the oar so i would know since i'd be holding on to the round handle of the oar and of course since the blade is nine feet away and since in uh, rowing you have to turn the oar a lot you have to uh, turn it to, so when you are making a stroke of course you want the blade straight up and down in the water but then as soon as it comes out of the water you feather the oar so it skips back over the water and uh, doesn't catch on the bottom it uh, it's turned so it's parallel to the surface of the water. And then the split second before you take the next stroke, you turn it again, you feather it back into the stroke position, drop it in the water, and uh, take the stroke. So did you participate all four years at Princeton in rowing? Yes, I did. I took part uh, all four years. This was in the 1950s you were at Princeton. Yes. So this is obviously long before the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990 and obviously before any of the technology that exists today. Right. I'm curious how you were able to navigate not just your sporting life, but particularly your studies at Princeton okay. in the early 1950s before right. these accommodations exist existed. When I went to Princeton, uh, the academic departments, they'd had some experience with blind students before, so they knew that the amount of reading that was uh, necessary was just tremendous. So most of the material that was available, that was recommended, was not available in Braille or available in any recorded format. It was necessary to develop a, a huge crew of readers. This was done very easily by the university because the university of course knew that many 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 of the students were there on uh, student aid of one form or another. So students who were taking the same classes that I had signed up for and who had also signed up for student jobs were assigned to read to me the courses that they were taking. Would you take notes? In, yes. Yes. In, in Braille? Yes, I took notes in Braille on a Braille slate, which as you know is a, uh, it looks sort of like a big clipboard. I have one here in front of me right now. I knew Braille because I'd gone to the School for the Blind. When I went to the lectures, of course, I would take notes in Braille, and I would take notes uh, by the fellows who would come and read for me. How were exams handled for you? One of the things I learned while at the School for the Blind was typing. That is, typing on a standard typewriter. When I graduated from high school, one of the gifts 
given to all the graduates from the School for the Blind was a portable typewriter. I took with me to Princeton a portable typewriter, which I still own, by the way, and still use. Before examinations were given, I approached the uh, professors and explained to them that I couldn't see to take the examination in the standard way, so I would need somebody to read it to me, and then I could type the answers. You mentioned earlier part of one of the reasons why you were contacted about the Out of Sight Dragons to help organize the team is because of your past experience as a lawyer. Can you tell me where you went to law school? As I mentioned a while ago, uh, I was a penniless lad from Appalachia, and my ultimate decision was made based on where I got the most helpful financial assistance. The law school that came through with the best financial assistance was the University of Chicago. Skipping forward, once you graduated from law school, what type of work did you go into with your law degree? I had been in touch with lawyers in my hometown and I got a part-time position in the office of an attorney there who was frequently out of the office to fill in and help his clients and work with him. At the same time, I decided that I did want to look for a full-time position, so I signed up to take a federal civil service examination. Did well on that and waited for federal agencies to contact me about possible jobs, and I was contacted contacted about a possible job uh, in Washington with the uh, U.S. Navy. So I did accept that. I came to Washington and it was not as an attorney, but in a job where my attorney background certainly was very helpful. What year was that when you came to Washington? That would have been in 1959. After approximately one year, I transferred from my position with the Navy, with the Bureau of Supplies and Accounts, to the Office of General Counsel, the U.S. Small Business Administration. I stayed with that organization for the next 21 years. So bringing you into the uh, early 80s. Yes. I know that later on in your career, you were working with and active with blind advocacy organizations. Yes. Can you, can you right. talk about that work after your time with the federal government? Actually, I became involved in advocacy activity while I was with the federal government. I continued rowing for a while here in Washington as a member of one of the boat clubs. Then I also took up a new sport. I took up 10-pin bowling as a member of a newly established D.C. Blind Bowling League, which is part of the American Blind Bowling Association. Then eventually, another sport developed, which eventually became ski Ski for Light. That's a cross-country skiing program. As I said a while ago, it wasn't unusual for one of these activities to lead to another one, and that one eventually did lead to greater involvement in the United States Association for Blind Athletes. I also had become very involved in other organizations, such as the American Blind Lawyers Association, which was a new advocacy organization that was formed by the American Council of the Blind. As the American Council of the Blind grew as an organization, it developed other advocacy activities going in various directions and uh, dealing with different professions and vocations and so forth. Did become president of the American Blind Lawyers Association fairly soon after, uh, in fact, helping form it. And at the time I helped form it, I was still active in the Blind Bowling Association. And the way I got involved in the American Council was going to speak about blind bowling. 
And over the years then, my involvement with the blind lawyers expanded to other activities. For example, I did go ahead and uh, serve as president, eventually, of the American Council of the Blind. By that time, I had uh, come very much involved in uh, not just the activities of the Blind Lawyers Association, but uh, I was interested in activities of other organizations. I was offered the position as executive director of the American Council of the Blind if I wanted to retire from the federal government at that point and uh, concentrate on uh, dealing with the American Council and working in all directions uh, dealing with concerns of blind and vision visually impaired people. So yes, I did make the switch. After being with the federal government for about 22 years, and I finished my full-time working career working then for the American Council of the Blind. And in that position then, I did expand in other directions, such as becoming more involved in international activities involving blind people, such as the uh, the International Blind Sports Association. What year was it that you retired from full-time employment? I left Small Business Administration in uh, 1981 and went to work full-time for the American Council of the Blind. And I worked for the American Council of the Blind through 1999. It was at that time that I retired and continued very active in activities of the blind because by that time I had become very involved in a number of activities involving blind people. I referred earlier to the U.S. Association for Blind Athletes, which had become very active and uh, part of the uh, U.S. Olympic program by that time. At the same time, uh, I continued uh, active for many years in the uh, bowling program, and I continued active for many years in uh, a rowing program, too. The Out of Sight Dragons is really just a continuation of the the sporting life and also the yes. advocacy work for, for yes. blind folks that you've done throughout right. your whole career. That's right. I think wrapping up with one last question, with your whole career in perspective now, can you speak a bit about what it means to be a member of the Out of Sight Dragons for you now at this point in your life? It means several things. First of all, just as purely a technical matter, I am the oldest active member of that organization now. I view it as, first of all, a very healthful activity. Yes, I have modified the way I participate in it that I've had to do as uh, health needs have changed over the years, but it's a very healthful activity which I find not only to benefit my health, but having the social contact with other people, helping to encourage them and develop the technique and so forth, this is all very encouraging for me. And uh, it's it's something I enjoy. You get to know other people around in the community and you simply stay in far, far better contact with people and the world uh, of disability as well as participating in the uh, expanded program of competition with uh, sighted paddlers as, as we do every year. Well, thanks, Oral. I really appreciate you doing this. You've had a fascinating life and I am glad that had the opportunity to have you on episode two of the out of sight dragons podcast well thank you very much go paddlers go